Hey again, everybody. Welcome to Dead Cat. This is Tom. I'm here with Eric. Very excited about this episode and our special guest, Sean Colo from 3L Capital. Uh, and excited for a couple of reasons. One, 3L has a lot of interesting investments that, that we can get into in this podcast. Sean, before he was uh, doing the VC thing with 3L, was the co-founder and CEO of Demand Media, which is a media company that very much defined a certain era of online media and has kind of been forgotten by a lot of people. So much so that when I was telling Eric and Katie how excited I was that, that Sean wanted to do the episode... And he was the former CEO and co-founder of Demand Media. They're like, what is Demand? And I think we should definitely explain all of that here because the story of Demand to me, beyond like I'm saying, I have personal resonance to this thing and I can explain later in the episode, foretells a lot of what happens later on in the digital media environment and very much, I think, uh, what's going on these days uh, with all of these companies. So uh, very excited to get all of this. Uh, But uh, Sean, first of all, thanks for joining. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no, thanks, Tom. I love, uh, and it's always good. I think to, to. I'm surprised that Eric and Katie didn't. I we didn't I, know the I, story. I, Come I, on, guys. I, when he sent the roundup of the brands, obviously I recognize some of the brands, but yeah, I am excited to sort of learn a little bit of the tech history. I mean, you know, media companies sort of responding to platform incentives is such a trend that we. Uh, experience over and over again so now with a yeah. lot a little bit of distance from it to get sort of the unvarnished uh view of it i'm i'm definitely excited to hear the story right, good good so yeah demand when i was explaining it to eric and katie i was explaining it as like this holding company that had a lot of different sites that they had a little bit more familiarity with but why don't you just explain like mm-hmm. at the outset like your co-founding of this company who you were involved with early days because yep. that's interesting too and like what yeah. what was the strategy with this thing yeah i guess i well let me i'll go back uh, a little bit uh, further than that so i was at a firm called spectrum equity investors i started my career as a private equity investor so this was in the late 90s right the 97 i think i started at spectrum and and we have to realize like what was happening in all different forms of media at that time, right? And media, you know, we can uh, all define it slightly different ways, but, you know, the different forms of media and the platforms, radio, cable, satellite, right? Yellow Pages was a form of media, right? Because it was a big advertising platform, right? So print, magazines. So when I started my career, what was happening was the telecom industry just deregulated platforms were opening up and you were seeing a lot of aggregation plays. I then started looking at internet businesses. So this, that was like, call it from like 27 through, or sorry, 97 through like early 2000. And then I started, I was sort of tasked with finding internet businesses that we could invest in. But we had a mandate that like we were investing only in in EBITDA positive companies. So trying to find a profitable internet company and, and oftentimes they're using leverage to like, you know, engineer returns. So I kind of had, that was my like background. And so when I, when I um, started looking at these two things at the same time, like, okay, internet businesses and, and media consolidation on, in, in the traditional sense, I basically just had the, a little bit of a light bulb moment, which is, well, okay, I see all these websites that are growing. And these were websites like eha.com or like dictionary.com, right? And in, in many ways, they actually had like, interesting domain names, which is just a little bit of a quirk of history. You know, people who were early, you know, registered names and then figured out how to act, they wanted to do something with them. So they started creating blogs. And then of course, 
with the growth of search engines and the growth of Google, these people who were really just passionate enthusiasts, right? They were knowledgeable about a topic. Sometimes they were good writers, sometimes they weren't, uh -huh. but they were creating websites and websites were getting traffic organically from Google for free and then monetizing them with Google for free. Mm -hmm. So you were starting to see this class of profitable websites that were emerging. And what you didn't really see was the venture capitalists didn't really care about those businesses for them. Like, you know, obviously there were a number of them when they started like really scale, they didn't. But if you were looking at a business like trails.com back then, right, which was one of the websites we ended up acquiring, was a really nice business run by two really smart entrepreneurs. Uh, they weren't really that attractive to a venture investor at the time. Um, and they also weren't really that attractive to private equity because they were also too small. Do you remember when you acquired it, sort of what the financials look like or what, what, what type of business? That company at the time might have been doing 10 to 12 in revenue and maybe it was doing like two or three of EBITDA. Yeah. Kind and of similar. That was the profile. And the business basically was, this was an attractive domain, like in a kind of almost, not, not pre-Google, because you said people were searching for it, but it felt like a very safe and comfortable website. Uh, as someone you was searching, you came across mm. trails.com. You're like, well, that sounds reliable. Right. And then, then, and then the content on there was good enough that you were, you know, willing to come back to it. Uh, and yeah. because of that traffic, you know, throw some banner ads on it, some AdSense, and, yeah. you know, you could, you could turn some, you could turn some cash with that. So I started building a deck, putting the thing together. And then that's when I met my co-founder, Richard Rosenblatt, who, uh, you know, was, was the chair, former chairman of MySpace. He was uh, based in Los Angeles. And when we started, and I started to socialize this idea with him, I said, hey, we, could, we can go buy these websites and, and go and build this company. You know, would love for you to be on the board. He said, well, actually, this is, it's actually pretty interesting. And if you add social networking to these sites, because he asked the right question at the time. I think it was like, well, okay, now that you buy them, that's great, but how do you grow them? Right. What are you going to do with them? Right. What do you do differently than what they were doing right. before? Right. What do you do? And so it was really, this is, you know, kind of pre-Facebook. And it was like, well, if you could snap social networking functionality into these sites, if you can make them social, then you, then you have something that could really grow. It could be, what year know, are we talking grow. about? This was in 2000 and let's see, we took the company in 06. So it was probably... Late 04, I was working on it for probably 18 months. Yeah, it was probably 04, 05. So Facebook at the time was really just like a college, uh, you know, co-ed yeah. phenomenon. You weren't seeing anywhere near the power of what it was going to be. I mean, I really don't even think it was, I have to go back and went, see what Facebook actually launched because I, it may have actually been pre-Facebook being a thing. Right. It might've been, it might've been Harvard. I vaguely remember a, a few friends sort of making the track, like investors saying, oh, I got to go see, you know, Go to Boston and see Mark uh -huh. on campus. Uh, and Richard, by the way, is one of these key figures in this group of people in LA that kind of defines this, what, I, what people, they called the MySpace mafia, which was, you know, I mean, obviously there's the PayPal mafia, I guess now the Stripe mafia, but as yeah. far as LA tech is concerned, this was the group of that era that kind of went off and spun out a bunch of companies uh, demand, I guess, being an example of that. And then Richard sort of being kind of like the, the dawn of, of the MySpace <laughs> mafia, right? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you would love that description too. The mid-2000s, Facebook is just sort of getting going. You're bringing in sort of like old guard internet with the MySpace guy mm -hmm. to start it. 
And then right. correct. And then correct. what? What? So then we start. Yeah. So then we. So then we raise. So then I basically have, have pre-negotiated three LOIs. So letters to, of intent. To basically, We're, yeah. To buy to buy three companies simultaneously, we raised one hundred twenty million dollars to go do that, and we bought one of the businesses. A part of the, there's another, but I don't want to get too far off the track. But part of the other part of the story, I mentioned the domain name and those media companies. Uh, you know, the, the small websites like trails.com, but there was also people at the time who were building portfolios of generic domain names. And that I also kind of viewed as a media asset because people were either typing it in or there were, you know, maybe had a landing page or something getting indexed to Google. And then you just saw a page with paid ads. Like, I don't even know if that's really a thing anymore, but. Right, right. It's just a website with a bunch of banner ads on there. It was just a website. Yeah, I think the, I think the search engines have kind of gone away from having that as kind of a core business, but, but it was just, it was like five blue links on a page and those things were printing money. They were making a ton of money. And that was going to be part of the story too, that that was going to be a a business that we were going to lean into. And again, it was sort of architect was going to be a content business and a media business, but it was going to have multiple elements or companies within it. So almost like a conglomerate type of approach from day one. Right. And so we bought, so there were a couple of companies that we bought. We bought a business called Enom, which is a domain name registrar with a great founder named Paul Stavura, who went off to found a business called Donuts, which is now a multi-billion dollar company in the domain name space. We bought eHow.com. And, um, and I think we bought another sort of portfolio of domain names that was probably generating like 5 million bucks of cash flow. So like day one, the business was generating, I think the profile of the time as I remember, it was like, it was, it was about a, uh, maybe 70 million in consolidated revenue and like 10 or 12 of EBITDA, like day one, <laughs> yeah. day one. Yeah. Which is kind of unthinkable these days, uh, for, for scaling up a business. Um, I yeah. want, I want to get to eHow and how you guys kind of scaled the content for, for these sites, because it's one thing to just yeah. have a popular domain yeah. that people are going to and there's links on it. But you know, the, the, as I understood it, um, the strategy with eHow is that you guys were trying to have content on there that was the stuff that people were searching for. And so the content mm-hmm. that was on the site was optimized for the most searched for terms on basically Google. Uh, yes. And so uh, explain that a little bit to me, because in a second, I want to get to content farming and, and my tiny yes, role in that whole exactly. empire. Right, right. So and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the founders now of Tastemade, which is Larry Fitzgibbon and Stephen Kidd and Joe Perez. They were part of this founding team at Demand. Now we give them their due because basically in addition to the social networking platform elements of these websites, we also had to sort of look around and say, how the hell else are we going to grow these? Like, what, what are these sites? Like, what, and, and I think one of the things that we, we realized early was that again, kind of back to that, that we used to call it like the most beautiful business model because it was like, you, you know, content was low cost or free. So you didn't have to be for content. You had to, you got free traffic. And you have free monetization. Right. <laughs> so it was like the, really the most beautiful business ever. But so, but Larry and Joe and Larry was, at, Larry was formerly at IAC and Joe was at MySpace with Rich um, and Stephen Kidd was at Axiahu. And so we had that sort of DNA in the mix. And those guys realized that um, we needed a content strategy. And so we, we, we then sort of quickly realized, oh, actually we need to really, and EHA was, it was an easy one because it was multi-category and there was lots of how-to content that we could think of creating. But if we were just sitting around saying, oh, well, how about this, you know, let's how to, you know, how to do a podcast or how to do whatever, like 
that's not going to scale. Right. So we had to really figure out how it was going to scale. And what we ultimately created was uh, what we call Demand Studios, which was a platform for, you know, pro, we used to call the prosumers, right? Writers to uh, create, you know, articles. And so that's kind of, that was a high level how it started. And then it got into the science of it and the math of it, which was, well, instead of just having this open platform and having people write anything, why don't we suggest what they write based on the expected payback and the math of the article? So we could say, okay, well, we know how to, uh, you know, how to change a tire. Uh, we know that that article, or we know, we, you know, we did some, we, our algorithms would sort of, you know, predict that that article could be, could generate a hundred million, or sorry, a hundred dollars in revenue in 18 months, right? Um, because of the, because of the PPC rates and because of the, um, the right. traffic that we were, we were getting. And so we could, we could basically reverse engineer a business model that was fairly visible in terms of dollars in and, do and dollars out. And, right. and the vast, vast majority of traffic is coming from Google, right? Vast, vast majority, <laughs> 90. Yes, right. yes. And, and basically like what the genius of eHow was figuring out is that a, there's a huge amount of people online that are just searching for how to do stuff. Just, just yes. at, at any given day, people are, are, are flocking to search engines, Google specifically, say like, oh, how do I change my tire? How do I make a flower bed in my backyard? How do I right. start a podcast? Exactly. And so what eHow basically did is, is like figure out that this is the types of things that people are searching for and contract out essentially to people um, to write these articles. That's right. That's yeah. right. Because we, did, we wanted to have, we wanted it to be a platform for content creators. We didn't necessarily want to have... Uh, you know, reams and reams of people on our staff writing content. Right. And so, okay. So, so this is where, this is where I come into the mix because, because <laughs> Tom's it, been waiting for this, by the way, Tom has been waiting to tell this story about yeah, how, I'm, I'm ready how to much come money clean he made. About, I think, the, the, yeah. The, I'm ready to come clean about my history. My, my first paid gig as a writer, because I was living in LA and I had no job at, for a certain period of time and I needed money. And the thing, I think I came across it on Craigslist was like, write articles to make money. And, you know, it was through Demand Studios and you go to this website and it basically tells you search around for things that you are an expert on and claim an article and we'll pay you 15 bucks an article. So you can, you know, let's say I was a, you know, a gardening expert and I would see an article about like, oh, how to build a flower bed in my backyard. Um, I say, oh, I, I claim that article and then I write it up and then I, 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 I press send <laughs> And I, it gets taken up by an editor. And I think an editor is also like a paid part of this. Someone gets paid like 10 bucks um, right. to approve it essentially. And then, mm -hmm. and then it goes online and I collect. And the thing that I found out about eHow, and I think, you know, what helped you guys scale, but also maybe what, you know, gave content farms a bad name is that the editing behind it was pretty thin, right? I mean, like it was definitely a pass-through sort of thing. People are not really incentivized mm -hmm. to do a great job editing stuff. And what I found out was that there were a lot of like articles, you know, it's, it's because of the way that the algorithm was written, you guys were trying to have as many different articles about similar subjects to like collect every single possible search term. And so I would find that there would be, basically you could rewrite the article. Mm -hmm. And so I would do a how-to, like how to convert, this was my thing, this was my racket. It would be like <laughs> how, how to convert CDs to MP3s. Yeah. 
And then there would be an article, how to convert my CDs to MP3s. <laughs> and there was, how can I convert CDs to MP3s? Yes. And how can yeah. I convert tapes to MP3s? How That's can right. I use my computer to convert yes. tapes to MP3s? Yeah. Basically, right. you guys were incentivized to collect as many different articles as possible so that no matter what, mm. if someone searches something, it comes up at the top of Google. Yes. And so what I would... Genius, genius right? Right. I mean... Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's just like mass content. Until it wasn't. Yeah, right, right. right. Well, but until until like the the algorithms are smart enough to do it. I mean, Tom's been basically functioning like sort of a little like computer program here, just finding similar. Yeah. Yeah, Well, you know, I think you guys. I mean, tell me how you guys sort of view this from the company. I've never really actually talked to you about this, but like, you know, how are you guys filtering this stuff out? Because I know that there was concerns about plagiarism. You didn't want people literally copying and pasting the same article because that would probably trigger some, some problems, but yes, didn't seem like you guys had too much of a problem with it. I mean, like it was just like anything that, you know, gets better and better over, over time. Right. So you launch these things. I, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, well, how do we, how do we scale the editorial? You know, we've got, now we've got the articles coming in. How do you scale the editing process? And, and, but I have to say one of the things that we didn't really, you know, sort of spend a lot, of, it, was, it was, we didn't spend that much time thinking about the similarity between the articles per se, because it was really much more top down title driven. Right. And as long as the article did a good job, right, answering the question, we thought that that was sufficient, right? We never really, I wish I could say we did, we did, but, um, you know, for, even from an eHow, like editorial standpoint, I don't think we really appreciated that the, the algorithms were going to change. The algorithms, the, you know, Google algorithm from 2000, I mean, it'd be interesting to kind of, you know, get the actual stat, but between like whatever it was, 97 and 2008, I don't know. I don't know if it changed at all, hmm. but then you started seeing, you know, okay. And then they started cycling through. And then, and then I think, I think the, for whatever reason, whether it was our IPO, you know, we had an article in Wired. I don't know if, if Google really felt like it was a, it was a bad user experience or if they just Was it specifically like they, about you or were you part of the category? Like I mean, how much did you, you represent? Know, content farming or we right. well so we then started just like just like everything you know like when you when you have some success then there's a lot of a lot of imitation well like about.com where do they they the you you put this like new york times acquires about.com right yes yes so yeah. what do you remember what time period that was just to, yeah we almost actually we almost did a deal with the new york times we were going to do a very big merger hmm. at one point with demand media the new york times really that would have been fun yeah huh. yeah like how close did it get Pretty close. You had a price or? Yeah, had price, had a deal negotiated. Yeah. And then what killed it? Uh, I think at the time it was just this, uh, I think the CEO of the New York Times was Janet. I can't remember her last name, but at the time she just got cold feet last minute, didn't want to do it. Who? So They would have been in charge or? We were going to do, I mean, I think we were going to verge about and demand and then really have kind of own the category. Oh, like so you were going to be sort of under them, but it, about in demand would have been. Merged. Yeah, we weren't going to be like creating New York Times. I know. Articles. I was yeah, like I terrified. Wanna, I was no, like, no, wow. No, 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 yeah. God, no, 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 no. It was like our content was really magazine content, right? I mean, disposable. It was, it was not, you know, I don't, I don't want to offend any, you know, gardening journalists, but it was like gardening home improvement, you know, the, the kind of stuff that, you know, you could, you could, um, you know, you could write, that Tom could write, you know, right. that, and that, you know, by the way, Tom would do a good job <laughs> writing an article 
you know, maybe. Well, here's the funny thing about that uh, is that like I wrote, you know, I would write, I would made a, a, you know, like a, I would tell myself I'm going to do 10 of these a day. And if I do 10 a day, that's 150 bucks a day. Right. And if I do it five days right. a week, that's $750 a week. And I paid off my credit card yep. doing that. And yep. after a month of doing that, I think an editor finally kicked back one of my articles that was like, uh, you know, how to take a record player right. and convert it to MP3s. And they're like, oh, you, right. know, you can't just yeah. plug a turntable into a computer. <laughs> and right, I was like, right, oh, right. huh. Well, I had written yeah. like probably 40 yeah. articles saying do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So quality could yeah. be a suspect. But, but you know, yeah. I think at its best, sure, right? It is someone who has a, an enthusiast for the category and would do a good job. Yeah. And again, this is early days of these types of platforms. And I think you go into these thinking people are inherently good. They're going to do the right thing, mm-hmm. right? And they just want to share their knowledge. I mean, that's really what it was about. And we just thought, well, actually, people want to share their knowledge. We can pay them. By the way, we were one of the only places, like, I mean, you know, if you go back to the Huffington Post, Huffington Post was having people write for free. And then people were like, well, they're not paying it. And we were like, well, why are people giving us our time? We're paying people. Like, I don't understand, like, what the, right? what's the the negative slant on, like, what we're doing, right? I don't know. But what was, I mean, if you can, like, put yourself back in that era, because I actually don't really remember specifically, what was the chief criticism of these sites? I mean, I guess quality maybe is suspect, but, like, what was... Over time, yes. I mean, I think over time, what you had was, well, Google, I think, started referring to it as, like, thin content. And it was, like, duplicative content. And so that then became one of the things that the algorithm really started directly targeting, was that you don't want to have a site that you know, 10 articles on, you know, your topic, Tom, like you, right. they want one, but, but by the way, they didn't. And again, it was, a, it was a change of mindset because when you think about like engagement metrics and Google and search, like when you're searching for something, you want an answer, right? I don't necessarily want to read a three page article on, MP, on the history of MP3s. Mm-hmm. Just tell me how to convert it. Right. Right. I mean, that's so you it. do want a true answer, <laughs> uh, which Tom is saying sometimes it, didn't always deliver, but yeah. Correct. Right. Yes. I, I mean, uh, clearly, you know, now Google like provides these answers itself. It doesn't even let you go off site. It's not even about, we eventually go from, okay, these are too thin yeah. to like, should, screw right. it. Even if you have a good high quality answer, we don't even want to mm-hmm. let you yeah. do it. We're going to do it ourselves. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, the evolution with Google. Explain to me the day in the offices when Google changes their algo. Okay. I, well, so, so, well, the, the, the story arc is that Google, be, you know, demand becomes a very successful public company. You were bigger Worth than more New, York New York Times, Times right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> at one point, at one point. Yeah. That's at one point. Yeah. That was um, a big headline point, for it. Uh, you can tell it we're was, journalists. We're like, oh, it just doesn't know, matter for a second. It. Right? Right? It's true. Yes, right? I know. I know. I know. And I, yeah, I remember that was a big thing, but we were a public company. I think the market cap was like close to 2 billion, you know, and then I think it was within like two months, maybe Google changed the algorithm. And that unfortunately was, it's just hard for any company, let alone a public company to overcome when you're, when you're cash flow, you know, and by the way, we were profitable. I mean, eHow was a monster business at one point. I mean, I think you're eHow welcome. at one point was generating. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. 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 We paid you 10 bucks, but I think we probably made a couple hundred on, that, <laughs> right. on those articles. Yeah. The, the, the structure was good. Yeah. But it didn't tell them, but obviously it wasn't sustainable, you know? And, and so the, when, when you have that kind of a hit as a public company, you know, there's unfortunately not a lot you can do. What year so was we, this? We, uh, we went public in 2011. And it happens like that year. I, I feel like yeah. I remember oh, yeah. this. Yeah. And 
Yeah. And then what you just totally get big rocked. Deal. Like how much I mean, you Tom, out? Tom, tell Eric, it was a big deal. This company was like a big deal. Yeah, no, it was the, you know, kind of banner LA tech company. And as it went public, like I'm saying, huge headlines about it being worth more than New York Times. It was like the new model for content. There was a lot of hand wringing. Yeah about like what it meant for the future of content I mean, and I was journalism still in college at this time. It's not like I was closely yeah, like paying right. attention to right. it. Right. You know? I wasn't That's even covering right. it yet. And it was, uh, you know, I, I started covering LA Tech in 2012. And so I guess that was sort of post, you know, post fiasco. And, and uh, as you guys were, you know, dealing with the fallout from all of this stuff. But yeah. did you have any signaling that Google was going to do this? I mean, did you, was there like a drumbeat that like, oh, you know, they're, they're rejiggering the algorithm and this is going to hurt all the content farm sites mm. or... No, but interestingly, what happened was the first algorithm change they made, we went up. Hmm. Like our traffic went, it was a benefit hmm. to us for like two weeks okay, or three weeks. And then the hammer fell and uh, that's when that, that is, we never really recovered from right. that. How much resentment is there within those companies toward, toward Google? Because, you know, as I started covering tech, I remember meeting Jason Calacanis, who I believe he had a company that was sort of in the sphere of, mm-hmm. of content. He form. did. Yeah. Yeah. Mahalo. Yeah. Mahalo. Yeah. Right. They had some yeah. kind of user generated content stuff that wasn't. But they, yeah. No, they basically, so yeah, J- Jason lost Mahalo and then cop and then tried to copy demand <laughs> and try to cramp, ramp up the content and then slammed demand, you know, Classic. and then was like, no, this model's crap. Yeah. Right. And then whatever. But Jason I like Jason, he's a good guy. But what happens yeah. to demand? I mean, does it go, does it get so, bought? Or? So demand stayed? No, I mean, well, the good thing about it, I mean, I think the way we architected it was not, we had a couple business lines in there, right? We had we had a, a big re- domain registrar business that was a profitable, profitable business. Um, we had some other, other properties too that we were building that were not dependent upon the, the content farm. And they were more, I'd say authentic in terms of the bill. Like we had one comedy site called cracked.com. The old crack. Right, I remember that. We bought, we, yeah. we bought the brand and, and that was, they were doing six posts a day. And that was not a volume game from a content standpoint. That was a real, that was like high quality, but again, kind of, we had a virtual writer's room. It was very, it was, it was very it sort was of good stuff. I mean, you guys were sort of early innovative. with like, like funny or die and college humor and those kind of online humor sites yeah. at the time. Right? Yeah. So we had that site that was really solid. And then we had livestrong.com, which was also, I think, a, a, just a good site, which had an, a companion app called the Daily Plate, which was like an early calorie tracker app that we acquired. And we bought a lot of these businesses, right? So we, we were acquiring. So I, then that's what I spent the bulk of my time doing, like 40 hours. Did Livestrong so. get rocked by the whole doping scandal where you guys owned yes. that? We, but there, there was issues with not with, at all. But there were issues with its attachment. It didn't to, affect to traffic, Armstrong, but though. that happened while you owned it or? Yeah. But, it, no, we it, but the it. business went fine, even though the doping stuff. Yeah, because out. the business wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Lance Armstrong out Cal. It was Livestrong. Right. But and, I remember the there movement. being stories about how, you know, Livestrong had to make very clear that it severed ties with Lance Armstrong, that he's not affiliated with the business, right? I don't remember if there was anything that specific, Tom. I okay. mean, I, I don't, I mean. More it dramatic was, in my memory. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit. We didn't have any, and we didn't have a huge branded ad sales team at the time. I mean, by the way, at the time, the people running branded ad sales who were Joanne Bradford and Eric Nardini. Oh. Huh. So, yeah, Eric, I mean, by the way, this was like the all-star team of <laughs> like like di- digital media. I'm telling you, like right. we had so many good people 
at this company. So does this company still trade? Does it still exist or what? No. So, so I know you're trying to get to the answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. We, but, but Eric, you skipped you over the thing, like the real juice that I wanted to get about Google, because I know people like Jason Kalkanis and maybe you as well sort of viewed yeah. this whole episode as an example of Google's, you know, uncheckable power. Oh, Right. Well, I mean, we're going to get to the course. conclusions. I just want to get to the end of the story. And okay, then there's fine, certainly fine, themes fine, fine, we can draw fine, about it. Yeah. Fine, fine. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. So demand with public, the market cap continued to slip. We then, um, we, we ended up uh, spinning off the domain business, which was called Right Side. Uh, and that ended up being acquired. And then demand changed its name to Leaf Group, which was remained a public company. It sort of did okay. Not so great. And then, um, and they were doing all the right things to try to, you know, right size the brands, right size the businesses and sort of doing the things that I, and I'll go to about.com for a second, which is now dot dash, which has actually done exceptionally well under Neil Vogel's leadership. Mm. But Neil, we have the same business model. And I think earlier on, maybe about said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to take down all this content and we're going to like rebuild some of these brands and put them into new categories and create, take the best content. Like if you took the best, eHow, I think maybe had three or 400,000 articles, right? If you took the best 30,000 and started a new how-to website, that would be a killer site. Mm-hmm. So I think what, what about did is they took, you know, the home and garden stuff, the, and they started doing that. And I think they did that sooner than we did, as I'm remembering now at demand. And so that now has formed the basis for Dot .dash, which is now a great, a great business. I mean, it's, and they report numbers, it's hugely profitable, hmm. um, a big piece of their value. So demand was in the process of doing the same thing as Leaf Group. We had also acquired a marketplace called Society6, which was an artist marketplace. So we started doing some commerce stuff. And that whole business is now uh, owned by the Washington Post. Hmm. And they run it. It's still... Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I haven't seen, I haven't really looked, I kind of been in sites in a long time. It but, sold for way less than it was once worth. On the oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think collectively that the, the both businesses were probably six, seven hundred million dollars if I had to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I so mean, maybe a half. Yeah. So obvi- what it was. obviously, you know, a big one. The first like theme here is just like companies building for like the big tech giants and how they can. You were sort of like the early days of getting rocked by Google. Did you ever like go to Jonah Peretti and say, hey, this BuzzFeed idea building off like Facebook is uh, reckless? Like I've been there before. It's. Or when you watch, or Zynga or any of these mafia, when you watch like the Facebook version of this play out, I don't know. Did you ever send emails to people being like, you're, you're an idiot. We did this already and it doesn't play out very well. Look, it's, I mean, we all understood. I think we were the first ones to really bear the brunt of platform dependency, right? Like, and this is now everybody is at the mercy of the platforms. The platforms weren't as I mean, we, 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 we sort of, you know, we, it was like this, um, symbiotic relationship, right? We were growing and they were, they were kind of benefiting and, you know, when you look at it, you're like, well, wait, why would Google ever do that? They make so much money off of our stuff. You know, like it's not economically right. in their best interest to do it. So it was a surprise to answer your earlier question. We were not expecting a, a, a change. And yeah, I mean, I think we shared a lot of war stories among all of the people who were running these, you know, sites at the time and. And, you know, Calcanus was right. I mean, it was a real show of market power from, uh, from Google. They never really had to explain themselves. I mean, they, you know, they just made these, again, of course, at the time, yeah, everybody's incredibly pissed. We're all upset. This is ridiculous. You know, in the benefit of hindsight, like, you know, the platforms are trying to do what they need to do in order to, you know, 
maintain the qualities that they, you know, hold dear. So, so, I mean, I can't, I, I, I wish I could say, you know, through those guys, I want to go sue them, but you know, they did what they did. And, and we, we had to react to what the market was giving us. And so, you know, when, when that algo change happened, we did what we thought was all the right thing. We took the kind of, okay, well, if that's not the way the market's going to work anymore, let's pull the content down. Let's try to rebuild. Let's just try to move forward. But the big, the big question, Eric, is really where does scale fit in media? This is really kind of the fun, I think one of the fundamental things right. that people need to understand. And it's hard. Right. It's hard to scale. Well, I mean, you know, how do you build something that actually can, can, can like scale? Like how big can one thing be before you have to go? Enough that it drives traffic to itself or what, what's the importance of Well, that, scale? I mean, that's the, I think the, the, the question as investors, right? So from the capital standpoint, from the money coming in standpoint, we want things that can scale. Investors are looking for businesses that, that have, you know, unlimited growth potential, right? Like one of the early investments we made at 3L is GoPuff, right? GoPuff is a quick commerce company, plays in a market that is so big in the U.S. It can be, this company can be, and it's becoming a very big business. But for media, how do you play it? You know, how do you do it? If you're in right. news, right? Well, how big can the New York right. Times be? Well, New York Times has to, do they have to buy things in sports? That's why they think about buying something like The Athletic, right? Like there's always these periods and you just have to understand where you are in the cycles of, of aggregation and disaggregation. And we were just early in this aggregation phase of digital media. I'm going to give voice to the sort of the journalistic or the, 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 the position that I think reporters would have. Or there are companies that are built that are product oriented and there are companies that are built that see some sort of problem in the market and say, we're going to solve mm. it. Like we're the business guys and we see there's like money to be made here right. and we'll go hire right. like the product people. And in a way, the fact that this was such a torque towards we're the business guys versus Correct. like, what's a great product that no matter what is going on in the world, there are customers for this. And so then, and so, mm -hmm. so you can translate this even beyond just like social media or a technology company dependence to say anytime, you know, you're building a company to solve sort of a peculiarity of how sort of the business landscape yep. is set up, you're more vulnerable than if you build a company that's sort of from first principles saying, what's the product we're serving yes. and people, are That's people right. going to want That's that right. for a long time? Very much so. And the magic is when you get both of those things working together. That is the magic. And unfortunately, what happens in, you know, the aggregation model is what you found is you've bought a, buzz, a bunch of businesses that were truly good and organic on their own, but they just got to a certain place that they weren't going to really get much bigger. It was really hard for them to kind of think about how they were going to get much bigger. Like a cracked or something. You Correct. could say, oh, that's like a good product, right. but right. we've hit this sort of ceiling of what the audience is. Exactly that right. Or That's right. The scale thing is so interesting with media because it's very clear to me how demand approached that, which was paying people like me a couple of bucks to write articles. And if you do that in mass, you can get enough articles that there is some sort of scale, scale-like advantage. You have a workforce, a freelance workforce. I remember having this exact conversation with Jonah uh, at BuzzFeed like five years ago or so, because there were questions about them at the time after they had raised a bunch of money from NBC mm -hmm. and, and whatever as to like, how are you going to scale BuzzFeed? Right. You know, it, it can media, it's just intrinsically hard to do because it's not, it, it's a labor intensive product right. for most people. And his line at the time, I think was, you know, this is when BuzzFeed was really trying to grow internationally and they were opening up BuzzFeed Brazil and, and BuzzFeed UK and, and maybe some I don't know, Australia or something. And that was his, that was his approach. It's like, if we can kind of spin off 
locations uh, and we can just produce content there, that's some sort of a global scale. Now, they've since closed almost all of those offices. I mean, the, mm. the business has taken a turn for yep. the worse in many ways. So I, the I stock guess, has gotten so low that it's doing okay. I feel like it survived some of the market turbulence a little bit just because it's uh, it got to like 500 million market cap or something, right? I haven't looked at it. Yeah. Yeah. It might be lower than well, that, but the well, enterprise value, yeah. the cash. Oh, yeah. Enterprise. Yeah, exactly. I want to get to BuzzFeed more specifically in a second, but just like in this broader topic, do you think there is an approach for media to scale in a way that other tech companies can? I mean, is it foolhardy to expect it? And by that, by that, you know, answer, like, is it a bad VC investment? Is media like just not a great, you know, uh, fit for the venture capital? Again, model? it's really, it depends. I would say you, that's why you don't see a lot of Silicon Valley investors investing in media. It is hard. It's, they do from time to time. And every once know. in a while, they do, you know, because sometimes there are things that do kind of break out or their platforms or, you know, things, you know, there are some things that can rise above the levels that they need to be for people to generate the returns they do. But it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, I look at, and I think you guys both have hit on it. It's product authenticity and the labor it takes to create a great media experience. And you can't just necessarily replicate if you guys have a great podcast about business, you can't just say, Hey, let's go do a podcast on gardening. You just like, right. it, just, it doesn't really, it doesn't really flow. So, but I think dot dash, I think there are a couple of companies, like one of the, the, the company that has, I don't know, doesn't get a, a ton of coverage and people never really talk about it, but the winner, okay. Of the, from the, if you look at the media business from 20, I don't know, 10 to 2020, I guess that decade. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Tom, who would you think is the winner in, in media, uh, in that era? Oh, this is uh -oh. going to be some I'll like, some like lateral choice that I, I'm not going to come up with 2010 to 20. It's an, I'll tell you what, I'll give you another hint. It was an LA company. LA company. I don't know. Snapchat. It's not a media I mean, company. Internet brand, internet brands. Which one is internet do, brands? Yeah. See, that's I mean, a company. Do you know owned, yeah. Do, do you know who owns WebMD? Interesting. No, but if uh, it, all right, see guys, this is good. How, this yeah, is, how maybe we should have a history this. podcast? Yeah, I mean, it's a very big company. I mean, it's I think it's now owned by KKR. Hmm. Okay, it's been recapitalized a number of times in the billions of dollars, and like them, J two, and I think Dot Dash are like the best of that, the best media companies around. Sure, today. J two, I'm more familiar with because they they own a couple of sites that people have heard of, like IGN, and they're always kind of in the mix. Yes. Yes, for, you right. know, they're always kind of like a stocking horse bidder when certain companies are going bankrupt. I, I can't remember who they bought not long. I think it was when they bought IGN. It was one of my favorite stories covering LA Tech at the time because J2 mm -hmm. is an online, they began as an online fax company. Correct. And yes. uh, I think they probably still do that to a degree. But like- I think they sold it. I think, I think they just sold it. I they feel like they. they sold it. But like, yeah. you know, I remember if you ever watched 30 Rock, you know, there was a joke about how NBC was like a subsidiary of the Shinehard Wig Company. Um, I yeah. always thought it was funny that yeah. IGN was a subsidiary of an online fax company. Like the biggest yeah. gaming site, it just happens to right, be like a right, sub-business right. for yeah. like a random fax and insurance company. That's funny. So that's internet brands. So WebMD, yeah. well, that's obviously, you know, like remains, like it's of a certain, of a different era. It's like probably of like mm -hmm. the dot-com era. Right but remains right. like a hugely right. visited site. Yeah. Well, look, there are businesses that have done well, they continue to do well driving organic traffic from Google, you know? And now, rightly so, they're probably just not talking about it that loudly, right? right? Because why would they? So what do you think about BuzzFeed then? I mean, you see them going public. It obviously hasn't gone too well in terms of their share price. 
I mean, what, yeah. what happens? To I a looked it up. Like it's that? like, Just, it's 590 something market cap. It seems like, yeah, the enterprise value is like 440s thereabouts. Yeah. And I think that's on revenue. Eric, I don't know if you've got that in front of you, but pretty significant revenue, right? It's like, right. I the multiples are terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are real questions though about whether growth continues even, you know. Uh, yeah, but. and I think, look, a lot of these companies, and I, I don't know the ins and outs of where BuzzFeed's business is today. I'm, I'm guessing they've got a pretty good size production business that's like a fee-for-service. They've probably got, uh, you know, still a decent-sized media business. I just, I honestly don't really, I and mean, as I told you guys, I've been out of, the, out of the game, you know, for the last, whatever, five, six years. So, I mean, I think they've done as you know, about as well as they can. I mean, I, I don't know what else they could have done, you know, and I think about uh, some other successful, uh, you know, investments like Barstool, which is a really successful, very successful venture investment for the Churning Group. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they figured out, okay, well, they, they had an angle. They, they then figured out, well, there's, a, there's online betting and commerce. That worked really well. I don't know, it just feels like the best way to play media is if you can, if you're in something, if you can invest in something in the sort of, you know, tens of millions of dollars and sell it in the low to medium size, hundreds of millions of dollars. Like there are still opportunities to be able to do that. But to think about the next billion dollar plus media company, it's really hard to, I don't, I, it's, I don't know what the formula is for it. I just, I don't know. I don't see it. And obviously Buzzfeed, you know, with whatever, how big they are, 700 million revenue, I mean, or whatever the number is, they're still not, they're at half, they're, you know, 400 million enterprise value. Right. So. You know, you'd, you would have loved to have been a, been a BuzzFeed investor if you invested at 40 million per year. And then and even something like the New York Times, I mean, you're seeing a lot of their growth come from like the puzzle games. And there is sort of an yeah. argument that, you know, some of the upside there is just, oh, well, we'll get more into games and less into... Yeah. Well, uh, I thought, yeah, what was really revealing with the Times too is they had this goal of getting to 10 million subscriptions. And then yeah. when they seemed like they were slowing down, it wasn't like in the realm of possibility in the next couple of years, they acquire the athletic. And so they're like, Hey, we reached 10 million. And it's like, well, yeah, you did, but yeah. you had to buy those subscriptions to get there. Yeah. But, but they've done like the New York Times has done a great job with their product. I think their product remains, you know, top notch. Totally. You know, the daily they've done, they, you know, they did a good job in, in audio. Their interactive formats are amazing. The video that they're producing is incredible. I mean, they're just, they're, you know, it's a high quality product. I mean, and they've done a good job. I mean, Tom, you probably remember that they, they were struggling part, by the way, part of the reason like demand was worth more than the New York times at one point was because people were just worried about the demise of print. Right. right? And so, so that, at that point they were probably 70% print, maybe 30% digital, maybe, maybe about 80, 20. Right. The New York times is worth seven, $7.3 billion. It is, it's still yeah. a tiny business in, in the scale of, it's like, you know, the most prestigious media brand in the world and compared to a technology company, it's still tiny. But, you know, that's, I think it's sort of indicative of, you know, the great product is probably going to grow at whatever the market rate grows, you know? I mean, that's that, that, uh, I don't know what their top line growth is, you know, probably in the, I'm guessing in the 10 to 15%. I don't even know if it's that high, but right. There's also companies like Reddit. I mean, is, is, do we think of Reddit as a media company? Right. Reddit, Reddit's like, oh, we don't have to pay people at all to produce our content. I mean, it is amazing. Right. These moderators spend so much time doing work for Reddit. And I mean, there is, yeah, you can see it so much as like the game is, can you figure out a way to make a bunch of content while paying as little as possible for labor and still getting 
the best possible content. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then of course you've got Facebook. Right. So, <laughs> right. Which it turns out it also was a platform company. Just that platform happened to be Apple. And when they changed their, uh, their rules and regulations. Yeah, that's right. There you go. There hit. you go. So, <laughs> yeah. It's platforms it's on platforms. Point. Do you want to, with yeah. the last couple of minutes here, do you want to tell, tell us a little bit about 3L and sort of what you guys are approaching there? I mean, you mentioned yeah. GoPuff. You guys were fairly early on there, which I'm sure has turned out nicely so far, but, um, you know, what else is kind of in the 3L portfolio and thesis? Um, I mean, we've been, you know, early growth investors. We're investing 10 to $25 million into, uh, you know, businesses that are generally between five and 50 million in revenue. So we're not really in the venture business. We're really in the you know, early growth. It's kind of what we do. And I think what we've done really well is find the right combination of the things we've sort of touched on on this podcast, which is, you know, great teams, big markets, disruptive businesses and ones where we really have a good understanding of the underlying profitability and the unit economics of those companies. So we can try to project and, you know, build our models to, to suggest when they're going to get to cash flow break even and then profitability. How, how do you do that model on GoPuff? I mean, people, you know, it feels like we're on another cycle of on demand will never make money. Yeah. I, I'm like fatigued yeah. by it because we sort of watch that with a Ubers and DoorDashes and whether, you know, yeah. those are big companies. I don't know. How do you do that with a DoorDash? I mean, with a GoPuff? Well, first of all, when we invested in GoPuff, it was profitable in Philadelphia. Mm. So it was generating EBITDA. And we, there were, there's the nuance that now the market really appreciates, but didn't for a number of years because GoPuff was A, it's a Philly company. So you'd have to like really do some research to find out when the first article was written about this business. But the, by then they had probably already raised a couple hundred million dollars. They never publicized around. They didn't talk about the business. Um, it's fascinating is, looking the, back at early GoPuff coverage because it's mostly articles in like the Philly Inquirer and like the Philadelphia Weekly, you know, very much positioning it as this like, yeah. hey, a couple of bros yeah. started a thing where you can get hookah delivery. Yeah. I mean, like if you're making money, guys, you, you know, the best strategy is make money quietly. <laughs> I mean, so, so, so like, so that really is, you know, that's what you want to be. Um, Was that know, explicit suggestion with GoPuff, by the way, to kind of tell them like, yeah, you guys are building this thing. It's nice, but don't go out there and like get the splashy tech crunch uh, information. They, they were, when we made our investment, they had already gotten that religion. So, and so we didn't even announce it, nor did they. And and, but the beauty of that model is, you know, it's, it's, they are the inventory provider. So they're making money on the wholesale retail spread. So it's like a 7-Eleven store, except that the store comes to you. Right. And so we've got, you know, it's just a better, it's a better operating model. They can make money on advertising, which they're doing now. And, you know, now their market continues to expand because once you've got this footprint, you can start to add some of your own products. They launched their own, you know, their own white label uh, set of products called Basically. They've acquired, you know, coffee businesses. So now they can bring you coffee that they're, that they're supplying. So, and that business is all about delivery efficiency and orders delivered per hour. And when you have a point to multi-point distribution system, um, it's way better than something like DoorDash, which is pick up one place, go to another place, pick up, go to another place. So what, the way we've looked at the unit economics are they're far superior to what DoorDash is doing. And um, that's why we think GoPuff is going to be just a really big company. But we do that with all of our, you know, I mean, we, we try to find that combination of things with all of our investments, whether it's, you know, uh, GoPuff or Chownow or Roman or Daily Harvest or, you know, now it fund two businesses like, you know, Encode or Dealer Policy, different markets, you know, some of them are 
insure tech, some are delivery, some are logistics, some are telehealth. How, how big is Fund 2? Fund 2 is going to be probably between four and 500. We're, we're still, we're investing it. We're already investing out of Fund 2, but we're still, um, we should be wrapping that up by end of March. Cool. So any, any, any other companies you want to bring up to us? You guys doing anything in, uh, in Web3 and crypto? Um, we're spending some time thinking about how uh, Web3 crypto are going to influence the industries in which we're investing. So, I mean, the short answer is, you know, no, I think we're making some personal investments, you know, in, in different funds and companies and things like that, but, but nothing, nothing at the fund level yet, but we've had some interns, we've had some, you know, some of the, uh, team has been spending time trying to understand it. Like we looked at one thing that was sort of in the crypto IRA space, which I thought was pretty interesting, but hmm. obviously, you know, you would have loved to invest in, in Coinbase, <laughs> you know. Way back when. Right. So things like that, you know, board platform. Business. Are you doing anything just with sort of the market being all over the place? Did you pause investing at all or have you just continued to invest or what sort of your approach been? Um, by the way, I'm going to put one more fine, final point on the demand media oh, story. Sure. So, sure. Um, so by the way, Richard Rosenblatt and his and his son, his son is the CEO of a company called Autograph, which is um, a pretty high profile business in the NFT marketplace. So that's hmm. the one with Tom, Tom Brady. So good for those guys. Do you so, own any NFTs? Um, uh, not directly. No, through a fund I do, but yeah, not directly. <laughs> okay. No. You okay. invested no. in a fund that was just going to buy up a bunch of NFTs? I invested in a, in a crypto fund, a fund that's oh, been investing yeah. in fund manager stuff. Right, right, so right. yeah, yeah. In, indirectly. But because, you know, who's going to pick, you know, the best ape? I don't know how to do that. That's right. not my, I don't, that's not my thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but no, Eric, in terms of, in terms of, so I think it's a very, we're in a very healthy part of the market right now. I think there's been a, a lot of things got pulled forward last year. The last quarter, the fourth quarter of last year was just massive pace, like the, the investment pace, the timeline that you had to make decisions, everything got accelerated. And I feel like there's definitely been a little bit of a pause. You know, I don't know what the numbers will show in terms of like dollars invested in the quarter, et cetera. But at least for us, it feels like the, it's, a, it's a bit more normalized. We're having a little bit more time to look at and evaluate companies and so we, you know, it's been looking at some really interesting, interesting businesses. And I do think that, you know, like the pricing is adjusting too. I mean, it's, it's usually a little bit slower to adjust in the private markets, but it, it's something that you've always got to be mindful of when you're making an investment. And one of the things that we usually do in our underwriting process is just look at the five-year historical trading average for multiples. And so you can really can look at within a cycle, okay, well, you know, software companies used to trade at 10, now they're at 20, now they're back down to 12. I mean, so, hmm. you know, if you, if you kept that sort of some discipline in terms of pricing and said, well, gosh, okay, we know the market's at 20, but if we pay 20 and the, you know, once the multiples collapse, you can, you're going to get killed. Right. Um, or it takes, it's very hard for companies to go through that multiple compression. You got to grow a hundred percent for a couple of years, right? You know, right. you got to plug your way through it. So I don't know, it just feels like it's a good time. I know we've been, we've been seeing some really interesting companies and, and it's nice to have such a, uh, a strong if, portfolio of if, car companies. If someone's too. starting a a media business, uh, should they stay away from you? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they should stay away from me. I, I, I look, I, I I love talking about it. I mean, I have this sort of love hate relationship <laughs> with the media business. Mm-hmm. I mean, I so do I, we. I don't want to discourage anybody from doing it. I mean, you can do well. You guys can, you know, you guys can have a you can have a good business and be, make money and be profitable. And I'm happy to share like platform war stories. I mean, you know, you just don't. You have to start with that, the authenticity of like these brands. And if you get the product side right and it just, 
you get that product market fit, right? Then, then, you know, that's when you can start to figure out, okay, well, how do we, can we, can we use, you know, some capital to engineer things? You know, do we want to buy a, if you guys have an audio business, is there a video business that maybe is adjacent or complementary? Right. You can start building a, building a business like that. Actually, another business, one of the more successful businesses, I think, of the last decade too, it's Skift. I think, I think um, they've done a hmm. really good job. Rafat is a smart product oriented. That's the, uh, the travel focused uh, media company. Yeah. Yeah. They always put them in the same category. I used to, Eric and I both uh, were at the information and I feel like they yeah. get grouped frequently as like, you know, category specific, loyal subscriber yeah. based media yeah. businesses. Do you, is it private? Do you know what it's, you have a guess on it's how, private. Much, how much it's, it's worth private. or? I don't know how much it's worth, but all I can say is it's good. You know, like it's good. I think they've raised some money. I think people, investors in that company will make money. What do you think? Do you know, do you know, do you think you have a view on what the information is worth? I haven't seen the numbers lately. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> They're never going to sell. <laughs> I, so I, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hard I don't to know, attach guys. a value I mean, to it. I, I mean, I think, I feel like they've done well. I mean, I, I, again, they've built a good product that people like and, um, they're growing I mean, a lot these days as a, a big investment from the top right. on, uh, yeah. on hiring new yeah. reporters. But see, the problem is, but here's the challenge. Here's, here's what you don't want to see. You don't want to see businesses that then raise too much money, right? Because if they raise, and this is the, this is the, the part of the challenge in this business is you grow a business and then you feel like you have to raise money to keep growing it. But sometimes you do, if you obviously need the capital. But then you might raise too much and it might be at too high a price. And then you're in a trap. Right. Because right. now you're like, how do I justify this price? What do I do with the money? And then of course the next round, I mean, just look at look at the look at the financing progression for BuzzFeed. Right. Right. Oh, we raised money at a billion five. Now we gotta get we gotta think about how do we make this thing worth five billion, you know, or vice. I mean, oh yeah. So these companies are now they're you get you get trapped because investors will give you the money, but it's really hard to kind of as I said, like, it's hard to figure out how to scale. Vice has been such a disaster, right? I mean, it's complicated. That, I mean, they've clearly, you know, they actually on their own have six to 700 million in revenue, which that's without doing, a, you know, a ton of acquisitions like BuzzFeed had yeah. to do. Uh, their revenue comes from slightly different avenues like um, affiliate because they own, you know, a cable network. But the funny yeah. thing about Vice to me, maybe funny isn't the right word, is that, you know, they raise money from TPG. So there's, you know, you yeah. want to talk about like, you can raise the money. It's like, well, there's a huge amount of caveats that you get raising mm -hmm. money from a TPG and all the terms that they put yeah. in, which has really yeah. come back to bite them now. I mean, they're a case of right. just I mean, like- Isn't TPG back in the game with Puck? Didn't Puck raise money from them? Or do we know that yet? They, uh, TPG yeah, TPG guy, is, the, right? is the backer of it, but, you know, how much money have they floated to pot? Right. Maybe like uh, less than a hundred million. Like, you know, with, with vice, they were, you know, meeting valuations at like four and a half billion. I mean, right. it was, it was yeah. insanity. And, yeah. and they have all these, like, you know, there's essentially de debt. I mean, it's, it's venture debt. Like they, they're going to have to pay this yeah. off and they're not profitable. So it's, it's really messy for them. It's hard. Yeah. Again, it's cause it's, we go back to, it's hard to scale, you know, branded media businesses. But, but I would, I would, by the way, Eric, I would never, I never refer to companies as a disaster because I know how hard, yeah, I know how hard it is to build these right. businesses and people work hard every day to try to make them better. Right. And so, you know, sometimes businesses don't go as well as you think, but I always, you know, I always try to keep it positive and be like sure. pro entrepreneur and pro team. And, yeah. That's you know, my job the point to be, of, uh, 
Minor, you negative, be, you know, yeah, to, yeah. to compensate see, for that. You wouldn't be the uh, only one to call you know this a disaster. You're being, you're being negative because you want the algo. You know, you're, you're, see, now you're serving the algo. Right. Is this a content farm? Is this a content farm podcast? Right. Yeah, our, our algorithm is just retweets, though. You know, we're just we're just optimizing for for yeah. anger on Twitter. So, uh, well done there. I mean, do you think there are a lot of like fake views out there, or just sort of the idea that like media companies that aren't in the subscription company? subscription business but are in still sort of the audience business like how now that you're away from it like do you think they have a pretty clear-eyed sense of what their actual like engagement and an audience is or i don't know in your heart do you have a view of how real the internet is oh (laughs) well like if facebook you know who should be the expert in this can just like change overnight like the video you know how their views on like video consumption and anything. I don't know. I'm just always paranoid yeah. that there are a lot of like, because even the biggest, most established media companies, some of their practices around views, I find super questionable. Oh, oh it's complete bullshit. Right. It's a ton of horseshit. Right. So the audience size is, yeah, right. no, I, I, yes, there's a lot of crap that goes into whenever I see, first of all, if somebody comes in with a slide and they show me how big their, their audience is, I just, I never really, I don't even look at it. Right. Yeah. Show me how many email addresses you have and show me like time on site. Like show me your, the, the engagement metrics. And that's how I'll, I'll, I can sort of tell you how, you know, how, how real the audience is. Yeah. That's where the momentum is with the media now. Like I work at, you know, Insider now, which, uh, you know, for the longest time was the traffic website. You know, they were all about telling people how much you know, page views, different articles had, and in the last few years have switched over to subscriptions. They could prove actual value and have more yep. sustainable revenue. So that's, uh, that's where it's yeah. at. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I know like people have been, that's why the New York times is a subscription business, right? So right. yeah, if you can build a subscriber base and serve them well, you, that's the best way. To, I mean, that is really the only way I guess to really kind of build a dependable media business. Cause otherwise you depend, you are really kind of on Google, depend on Facebook and, uh, and you're just, you know, working for those clicks. Yeah. Great. All right, Sean. Well, thanks so much for doing this. And this has been, like I said, very personally fulfilling to me. I feel (laughs) like I've been able to go full circle from from, from working for you. I'm so glad. To reporting on you while I was at the LA Business Journal to now speaking to you, uh, not as an equal, but uh, as uh, someone who could maybe speak the same language. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, well, like I, it's, it was cathartic for me too. So I, I enjoyed it. Great. Uh, it's Great. always good to talk about demand. And so. by the way, I apologize to anyone out there who took my advice on converting records to CDs and plugged their <laughs> uh, phonograph directly into their computer. Apparently you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, and there was a day, by the way, that I think you guys at demand announced that you were getting rid of low quality content just in one fell swoop, deleting like a hundred thousand mm-hmm. articles or something. Yeah. I think all yeah. of my work that I spent during you know the summer <laughs> oh, of two thousand nine okay. is gone. There you go. Yeah, it was washed away in that. Rightfully so. Yeah. So well, we'll and I also wrote under a way, suit way back. So no one will ever find those articles anyway. Ah, okay. There we go. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll have to. All right. That's good trivia. Anyway, Sean, thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, guys. See ya. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.